0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present. I'm your host, Maggie, and my guest today is Jillian Tan. Jillian is Senior Lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University. Her doctoral research at the University of Melbourne explored different perceptions and articulations of change among various actors in a Tibetan community, from nomads to the international development industry to the Chinese government. Her current research and ecology of religion examines relationships among people, environment, and religiosity in the Tibetan Plateau. And her monograph, which is titled Pastures of Change Contemporary Adaptations and Transformations Among Nomadic Pastoralists of Eastern Tibet, was published by Springer in 2018. And that's the topic that we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much, Jillian, for joining me. Thanks, Maggie, for the invitation. So I guess to orient listeners um, to your research, could you start by explaining a little bit of the sort of historical and cultural context of your research into uh, Tibetan pastoralism, sort of what's the nature of pastoralism
1: in the Tibetan region specifically? Right. Um, good question, especially one uh, directed to digital nomads. Um, mm-hmm. Look, in um, the Tibetan regions of China, which is where I've done my uh, anthropological fieldwork, um, there is um, a, a Tibetan word that's used uh, to very clearly mark uh, the kinds of uh pastoralists that um, we sort of understand in Western academic literature. And that Tibetan word is Drogba. That's quite sort of generic. Um, It's used across the various uh, sort of dialects and across the various cultural regions of Tibet. And uh, many Tibetans, I think, will understand that, you know, if you say you're a Drogba, uh that the, the sort of um, images and understandings of what that means in terms of practice, what that means as a way of life. Uh, and I say this because there is also a subcategory. Uh, related uh, to pastoralism um, in terms of animal husbandry, um, and they uh, the subcategory of uh, people are known as the Samadruk or the Romadruk, and what that means is, uh, I guess, in terms of uh, a correlation to Western academic literatures, they'd be semi-pastoralists. You know, they, so there would be people who uh, practice animal husbandry, pastoralism, as you know we might understand it but they are also oriented towards agriculture as a form of subsistence. And what that means clearly is uh, when you've got fields, uh, you've got to stay with the fields and you're also sort of um, dictated by the rhythms of the harvest, of planting, and uh, what that means, I guess, for this group of people is that the orientation is uh, equally towards the fields and towards a fixed abode. Uh, so pastoralism in Tibet, when we talk about the drogba, is, is really a nomadic pastoralism. It's really a pastoralism that is, um, uh, you know, that entails movement, that is about moving with the animals to Fresh pasture, rather than bringing fodder to the animals, or you know, even having a system of rotation for hay. So I think that's um, what I would first sort of uh, sort of say uh, from the perspective of Tibetans uh, that the word or the idea of droppa is very much a nomadic pastoralist, uh, so someone that who moves, and I guess that there uh, is the. Uh, connection with uh, the subject of this podcast, which is about digital nomads. (laughs) And so uh, apart from that, it's it's got a really, really long history. Look, there was um, an article, I think it was in uh, Nature uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the lead author. I know that Mark Aldenderfer was part of this research team. And it was an archaeological team that went uh, to the central Tibetan plateau, quite far west uh, of the central Tibetan plateau. And they found evidence of um, nomadic pastoralism dating back, um, you know, sort of thousands of years. And here, (laughs) I'm sorry, I haven't done uh, the the research. Uh, It's not fresh in my head. This is of three or four years ago. Um, And COVID of course has um, made everything much more fuzzy and hazy. Um, But uh, what that, archaeological team uh, discovered was evidence really that pastoralism uh, was not a sort of subset in some sense of agricultural um, sort of activity, but rather was already being practised prior to early evidence of um, the earliest evidence of agriculture on um, areas uh, sort of south of the plateau. Um, And I think that just really indicates that Pastoralism, at least as it was practiced on the Tibetan plateau, um, is something um, that uh, has been a way of life for thousands and thousands of years. It's something that um, is born in many ways out of uh, the necessities of the environment, but it's not Uh, environmentally determined. Uh, So that's an important distinction, right? So that the environment clearly um, uh, presents factors that enable or even uh, sort of make pastoralism and nomadic pastoralism the main subsistence of a particular group of people, but it's not the only determining factor. And I I say this because there are parts of the Tibetan Plateau uh, further south and east, um, actually in areas where I've done my field work, that are able to be used, the environment's able to be used uh, for growing a kind of highland barley. Uh, The environment's able to be used for planting, even at some altitudes, of planting a certain variety of rice, can you believe? Uh, But importantly, people choose to be pastoralists, right? They choose to live that kind of lifestyle. And that's very much, um, it's, it's as much an association with the identity of being Drukpa as it is about what the environment will allow, what kind of subsistence um, the environments will allow. So it's not environmentally determined. that That's really important. <laughs>
0: And so, um, you know, so even though pastoralism in Tibet has this extremely long thousand year history, a kind of key argument of your research is around the changes and adaptations that Tibetan pastoralism has undergone in the past, maybe. 50 or so years sort of within the context of the Chinese state of the modern Chinese state um, and how Tibetan pastoralists have had to adapt to kind of changing um, policies um, vis-a-vis how the Chinese government kind of perceives pastoralism and wants pastoralism to or doesn't want pastoralism to function within the Chinese state. So can you talk a little bit about that, about some of your kind of key takeaways or findings around how pastoral how pastoralism in Tibet has had to change or kind of been changed
1: within the past, you know, just couple decades, okay. really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. And it's really a great opportunity, I think, to, um, in my reply, perhaps also dispel some of the myths around, um, you know, the, the romantic nomad, or you know, the, the sort of idea of, uh, in especially within the area of Tibetan studies, um, the idea of the Eastern Tibetan nomad as a kind of a warrior. That, that's a very strong trope um, within Tibetan studies, it, and especially amongst Tibetans too. There there is a tendency uh, to sort of think about a, a person from Kham, uh, which is the area where I've done my field. Work uh, when they call them campers as sorts of warriors and they and you know the idea is horseback you know uh, swords uh, you know, on the side of their their hips riding um, and herding their animals and and also um, thieving and stealing other animals and so that that's you know sort of part of um, the context as well and and I suppose what my book um, is really trying to uh, argue. And remind us all is that, yes, the changes that have occurred, especially in the past 60 years, uh, through the increasing involvement of the Chinese state into the um, everyday lives of Tibetan nomads um, have been quite intense and drastic. So there is that very clear um, sort of finding. But at the same time, it's to place that finding within a much larger and broader as well historical context of what pastoralism in Tibet has been. Um, and in some sense, continues to be so it's really a kind of the um, sort of key idea um, um, argument of the book is to be much more careful in a way sophisticated about our understanding of changes um, and how how we can uh, be more clear about uh, the nature of changes that are occurring, uh, and to not have that be completely sort of swept away by either romantic notions of, of what uh, nomads are, or um, sort of certain fixed notions about you know the the wicked state, for example, you know that you know the sort of pitting nomads against state in in that sort of way. When you're nodding your head, you know there is quite a lot of that um, in uh, the sort of common assumptions, and I suppose what uh, I'd say there is that when we think about um, nomadism in Tibet within this broader, larger context, uh, we we come up with the very clear sense that changes have always happened. I mean, in fact, change is absolutely the the fundamental uh, of uh, not only uh, sort of uh, this. Research, but it's also a fundamental idea of uh, Tibetan culture, right? So that impermanence, if we want to refer to its Buddhist roots, you know, impermanence is the only permanence in that sense. And so, change um, again, you know, another way of uh, thinking about it would be to call on uh, Marshall Salins's use. Of um plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. So the more something changes, the more, the more it stays the same, right? So this this kind of interesting um opposition, but also interdependence between the ideas of change and permanence or change and fixity. And um it, it's really to set the um visible, drastic, uh sort of intense changes that we might be able to see. To uh, that have been sort of uh, conducted on the grasslands of Tibet uh, as a result of policies of the Chinese state on these particular communities, and you see it—it's—it's it's visible. It's there. All these houses that are popping up, you know, all over the Tibetan plateau—they're concrete. They're fixed. You know, they're nothing like the mobile black tents um, of hundreds and thousands of years ago, but. You know that's what you see, and so then the idea would be to say, "Oh well, change is clearly there, don't you see it? And it's detrimental. It you know, it's sort of um, nomads are suffering from from all these changes, and that again, it's not to say that they're they're not, or that, that these visible visible changes aren't intense, but it's also to say there are other kinds of changes um, that might be more sort of um, integral or important to the idea of who Tibetan nomads are, and and I in the book. I say those changes are very much more marked by changes in relationships. So not in not in the products, not in what you can see, what it's not not what's most sort of spectacular in some sense, um, but the, the the unseen things that are occurring um, with regard to how relationships say between nomads are occurring, um, but not only that, between the nomads and their animals, really key here, because what is pastoralism without the animal, right? But then also another sort of aspect of change um, that the book explores is um, the relationship between nomads and the deities, the worldly deities that live on the grasslands of Tibet, They're populated not only with people and animals, but also with these non-human um, territorial deities. As you, uh, if you have, you know, if you can call them that in that way. So, all, all of these things, I I, I um, sort of argue, are also equally important to understand um, in light of uh, the visible changes. So you know, if a house pops up, yes, we can see that it's there, but does it actually change the relationship between the nomads and the animals, you know, or is that just an adaptation, really? Isn't that just a, w- another way of saying, well, okay, so the house is fixed, it's not something you can pick up like a black tent, but maybe it doesn't change the pattern uh, or the uh, migration routes of these people, maybe actually sort of is integrated in a way that allows them still to move, but in an adapted way, right? So I'd say, yes, that is change, but it's not that fundamental transformative change that might occur if you were to say, well, the relationship between nomads and the animals uh, are sort of like um, cut altogether, where, you know, there is no relationship then. If the nomads decide to sell their animals as capital, rather than regard their animals as herd and part of an ongoing sustainable uh, livelihood, that that I, I would say, that I would argue is transformative change. That's really critical. Because once they start selling herd, and what once they start regarding the yak as market commodity, that's where the real shift happens. Um, so I guess that's, in a nutshell, rather long nutshell, apologies, Um, it is what I I try to argue in the book. It's just to be more attentive to the nature of changes that are occurring on the plateau.
0: Interesting. Um, And so related to that, what about the question of agency and sort of the agency of the nomads within these processes of change. I think you sort of touched on this earlier about the importance of kind of dispelling a lot of the notions that we have around the nomad state relationship as being one of kind of top down, sort of enforced change. And I think in a lot of the research that I've done and with a lot of the other scholars and experts in their various fields that I've talked to, this comes up a lot that that is of how sort of mistaken that notion is and how the nomadic peoples who are being studied in various parts of the world exhibit agency and kind of direct change for themselves within these processes of kind of state control. What does that look like in your context? What does it look like when the people that you work with kind of claim agency over what might be seen as kind of happening to them?
1: Mm, Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question Um, because, you know, anyone can point to any number of, ex- of examples where um, agencies expressed say um, through resistance or through creative uh, sort of manoeuvres right so that um, you know the argument as you've rightly pointed out within the literature uh, generally is that when um, state, and this is actually not just related to um, nomads and I'm thinking here James Scott's you know sort of um, peasant resistance you know or all those sorts of works that that um, you know evoke this idea of resistance, creative manoeuvring, you know, just little strategies. I mean, one could even say that right now, what's happening, or uh, what has been happening within China, and the use, increasing use. Um, It's always been used, but increasing and different creative use of slang in order to get things um, sort of communicated under the radar of whatever state, you know, sort of panopticon that's um, monitoring the internet, you know, all the social media uh, sites, you know, all of those things are everyday examples of how resistance is constantly being sort of enacted, used, created, recreated. Uh, I think there is no sort of shortage of uh, those sorts of examples. And I, and I could pull up as well um, within the sort of um, Tibetan nomad context, all the d- different ways that, um, you know, nomads will appropriate, they will resist, you know, it just even a- along the lines of fenced grasslands. Well, that's supposed to denote private property, is it not? You know, you think about the idea of uh, what was um, without fences and therefore something that is, of the commons right and then the fences come up and the borders come up and you think well surely that denotes private property well well yes and no because what if the use of it doesn't actually um, align with private property use. Like what if households say, well, we can swap, you know, you you can use my fence this time and we'll come up with a deal and I'll say, well, okay, if you're using my fenced area this time, that could be why, because we are extended kin, you know, that could be because, you know, there is some kind of debt that's owing uh, within our households that have been, you know, sort of um, a generation and now we can finally repay it. There are all sorts of examples in which, you know, the actual visible product of something might not necessarily denote the use that it might um, connote, or that it might have intended. Uh, so that that's some, you know, I think that's something that um, will be intriguing to readers. I mean, I think we can all sort of identify with those things. But in fact, I think what I'd like to point out, is something more structural uh, something kind of more uh, in in some sense maybe abstract and and that is the idea. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed reading James Scott's book against the grain, and that is the idea that really the barbarians quote unquote you know the babas or whatever um were absolutely interdependent with state in fact, state could not function without the activities of the traders and the robbers and the you know the military um and those those sorts of ideas I think are more interesting because it places then the idea of these local, presumably, you know, assumedly sort of um, uh, oppressed, you know, I, I guess, you, know, you, can, you can think about it in those terms, um, people who are generally lacking or more lacking in agency uh, in, in a slightly different frame, if we were to think about them as somehow necessary to the functioning of state itself. But maybe not not in the ways that we might um, immediately think of, but necessary even to the justification of the state towards its own citizens, you know all, all these things come into play, so that having actually having the category of the nomad or of the barbarian or of you know the, the the outsider functions very much to the benefit of state and absolutely is part of how the state then continues to function. Uh, I, th- I think that is an interesting other uh, sort of take on the relationship maybe between the Chinese state and Tibetan nomads, you know, rather than um, focusing rightly in some cases on, on the idea of uh, a dominant state over its sort of, um, you know, um, for want of a better word, uh, peoples without as much agency. It's really maybe to to turn that around a little bit and say, actually, structurally, isn't that interesting that the state does use, has always done, and it does still continue to, in these various ways, use the margins, the externalities, um, the outside of the state to push its own um, sort of agenda to justify its own existence to its own, to all its people, I suppose. And that, that's the, that sort of interesting other aspect that um, I think to some extent I was trying to focus on and, or, you know, sort of think about in the book as well it's not it's not without danger of course um, because there is one chapter the last one in the book uh, on transforming subjectivities and and that one really is where you know I start to really um, push this um, this idea not comfortable for many especially in Tibetan studies when you think about you know Tibetans being um, complicit for want of a better word but actually actively uh, changing um, their own subjectivities actually sort of you can use different words for it um, to describe it. You know, complicity, uh, buying in. You know, sort of um, you know, all all those sorts of words to denote how yes, they do participate in the structure of the state, in the system of a market economy. Uh, and but when they do that, something does shift, something changes, and it's not to romanticize. Um, you know what tibetans or pastoralists or nomads should be but it's to say it's to it's to recognize that um at some point change does have a kind of transformative value uh what is that value Uh, it's just you know to say okay it might not be at that level of what's visible and spectacular but it might be at that value of um you know uh, how they re- regard their relationships with animals, with deities, um, and and that really, I think, it, it, for me, uh, is much more key. It's much more important those relationships that they have, and and with each other. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think your point about how nomads are sort of necessary to the state that they find themselves within, I think, is a sort of universal finding really, um, and one that I think is applicable in a lot of other contexts. Um, So to to move away from the state for a minute, what is the relationship between Tibetan pastoralists and sort of other segments of Tibetan society? You know, I think potentially, at least certainly in my case, I am not that familiar with the kind of Tibetan context. And when I think about Tibet, I think about sort of the protests, the anti-government protests that we're more f- familiar with from the news cycle. Um, so Tibetan pastoralism is it's just something that is not really otherwise on my radar. So what's the relationship of pastoralists in Tibet to maybe urban Tibetans or agriculturalists or the religious sector. You touched on this already. Can
1: you explain what those kind of more lateral relationships are like? Yeah, great. Um, Yes. Well, you've already really identified within contemporary Tibetan society um, those various um, segments, shall we say, because you still have the very um, sort of traditional subsistence um, groups of pastoralists and agriculturalists that that was and has been in the history of um, the Tibetan plateau. Um, Those were the the main groups uh, apart from uh, the, you know, even the kings actually emerged um, from the, the agricultural um, sort of group. Uh, but once we start going into um, more contemporary situation, we're of course dealing much more with um, uh, a kind of more uh, clearly distinct um, bureaucratic, uh, so segment, um, and that would be very much associated with the administration of the Chinese state, so that that's one clear segment. And then a growing segment too of urban Tibetans um, and they tend to uh, engage in business uh, in uh, lo- lots of um, design, uh, but you know these business aspects are also um, not entirely removed or segregated from the traditional bases um, of uh, of Tibet. And so, one of the very large business sectors is the caterpillar fungus industry, and that is very much connected to. The um, pastoralists, because you know this um, very strange thing called the caterpillar fungus, really only grows um, or is found up at a certain altitude above four thousand meters um, in the Tibetan plateau, and it is the combination of a certain lava and a certain um, mushroom, right, coming together, and it sells for. A lot of money still. Um, the prices have dropped now, but it sells for a lot of money um, in the eastern Chinese seaboard because it is a traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, so th- there are those sorts of businesses that are very clearly linked um, to uh, the um, pastoral Areas, but then there are also businesses around design creation of um, food things, you know, uh, tankas, uh, scarves, uh, and and that that actually um, has quite clear connections sometimes to the religious sector. And so, it, so then that, that's the the sort of final really large group um, within um, Tibetan society. It's the uh, religious uh, sector, so it's the monasteries, or the lamas um, that. Uh, associated with that, but also the nuns that um, also exist. And so what we have here are um, sort of lateral relations really amongst um, all of these various segments. And there's still very much... um, interconnected um, and uh, sort of interdependent in many ways. And I say this because the typical sort of setup of a Tibetan household, I think still, um, even right now in 2023, is if you have um, three children, not all your children are going to do the same thing. And so in in the past, it's tended to be that if you're, say, in a nomadic household, um, the eldest child might stay To herd the animals and and you know continue the subsistence the substance practices of nomads, but you'd send the second child to the monastery or the nunnery. And then you send a third child to school, to the Chinese government system school, where they could then possibly get a job within the administration or as a government worker. So these sort of multi-strategy approach is very much still in practice um, for lots of these traditional Tibetan societies. Um, if you, even if you're um, an agricultural um, sort of uh, person you'd you'd have you just practice this sort of thing. You keep the oldest child to tend to the harvest and the fields. You'd send the second one to the monastery or the nunnery. You'd send the third one to school. You know, and if you had more, for whatever reason, you know that that you know they cycle through again. So what that means is that these various segments are very much interconnected. You know, because one family could have sort of involvement in all, all of these various sectors. Um, and what that means is also that the religious segment is absolutely integrated within the community because everyone, everyone, trust me, will have a relative who is, you know, some lama here or some monk there or some nun here. And and that really integrates um, this religious sector, I think, in ways that you don't find um, as extensively in many other parts of the world. That I think is is quite interesting um, to think about. And and it also adds in many ways to the integration of pastoralists um, and that sort of mode of life um, into uh, the sort of other aspects of contemporary Tibetan society. So that you can often find a family with siblings, Still out in the grasslands, and then others having moved uh, to the towns or the cities and setting up businesses, and and the communication is still alive; it's still vibrant. You know, they're still we chatting with each other, and 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 um, those communication channels are open, and and with the monasteries as well.
0: Yeah, I found in your book your emphasis on how integrated religion is into pastoralism and vice versa really interesting and i wanted to ask about sort of the i guess the spatiality of religious practices among pastoralists because i think that's something that's always really interesting to me in different contexts is sort of where nomadic peoples practice their religion and sort of do people move to their religious sites or does religion kind of come to them? Like in the Mongolian context, although I don't know if this is the case anymore, there used to be this practice of sort of nomadic monasteries where the monasteries themselves would kind of move around to the given family, you know, nomadic family or tribe or whatever you want to call it. So what does that look like in Your context in the Tibetan plateau? How do religion and pastoralists kind of move around and with each other?
1: Yeah, it's a great point about the nomadic monasteries um, because they used to exist um, in the areas Mm. where I worked as well. Uh, Not anymore, um, but definitely, you know, up until not very long ago, I'd say maybe even the 80s, um, that these nomadic monasteries um, were still quite widely practiced. um, But that's now been, um, as with other things on the plateau, uh, fixed (laughs) to uh, certain um, places, clearly. That's a really interesting question. Um, And, you know, I hope I don't get too long winded in my reply, because you've just touched on a pet topic of mine. (laughs) Um, And and it starts, I guess, I'd I'd say it starts with um, the first important point, which is that religion um, as a category is not a separate category in Tibetan lives. I would think it's very, very much integrated. So in the, in the same way that they wouldn't not necessarily think about um, milking as an economic activity or you know whatever as uh, as a cultural you know their rituals as a cultural activity, it, it's all sort of um, mixed up already into into the everyday, into the everyday practice of everyday lives. Um, that would be one. Uh, point I just start with and then the other is that religion um for many people you know when you think about Tibet uh kind of normally associated with Tibetan Buddhism and and rightly so that that is um the sort of uh I guess obvious and also dominant uh, sort of expression of of religion re- religious practices for Tibetans, but there does also exist um, indigenous folk practices or uh, religious practices, and those are not necessarily marked as Buddhists. so when Buddhism you know first came to Tibet. Uh, was brought over from India. Clearly, um, the uh, the entire population already had their own sort of folk religious practices, their own sort of indigenous practices that were very uh, cleverly uh, subsumed, reinterpreted. One could say appropriated by the the Buddhist canon, but weren't um, weren't dispelled. They weren't banned, and they weren't sort of forbidden. And so, what we have in effect, especially amongst the uh, pastoral communities of Tibet, is a very, um, it's a very syncretic, (laughs) it's a very sort of, um, sort of combined sets of religious practices where the pantheon of gods and goddesses and deities extend far beyond what you would find within a sort of Buddhist canon. Shall we say? I mean, this is innumerable, uh, infinite number of deities that one might be able to encounter on the Tibetan plateau. Um, and so, when you ask about the spatiality of um, of these ritual and religious practices, I would say that that's really key for environment uh, for the. Um, Tibetan pastoralists, that it's in the environment so that, you know, your topographical markers like the mountains, the lakes, um, the smaller hills, these are all already imbued with um, significance, with religious and ritual significance. Um, Interestingly, also, uh, this has been, in some sense, um, uh, taken up by Buddhism, by the tantric aspect of uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, so that any place, any space is potentially, it, it could be um, the source of a treasure. I mean, you know, th- th- it's, just, it's just up to the revelation. Uh, it's just up to the re- revelation of the appropriate tantric practitioner uh, to to be opened up, I suppose, as a religious site, and so you know, uh, potentially we've got lists of um, you know, say, the twenty five great sacred sites of Kham, um, where you know that that's a list of uh, places of the environment that have been revealed as treasure in the tantric lineage and as significant uh, for ritual practices and things like that. But who's to say that there aren't other treasures hidden, not yet revealed, that we don't know about, you know, and it just needs the appropriate practitioner um, through appropriate an appropriate lineage and revelation to discover these places. So it's absolutely part of everyday life, and and in that sense, you know, it, it's um it's quite marvelous when you um it's out there living with Tibetan nomads, and um it, you know, they're they're even their Uh, Herding routes, you know, where they walk can be marked just everywhere by um, uh, places, by items even, you know, sometimes stones, you know, sometimes naturally occurring emanations on stones. All of these things are uh, imbued within and in the environment. It's quite marvellous. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that comes up in
0: my research as well in the Middle East um, and how herding roots are kind of determined by perceived sort of sacred sites and things like that. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, to, so to jump quite far away from the topic of religion, um, another agent of change um, that you talked about in your book, uh, which I found really interesting, was the international development sector. Um, And as someone who used to work for an international NGO, although in a very different context, I found this chapter really interesting, but also really difficult to read. Um, Just your descriptions of things like log frames and things like that Mm. was a little, um, Mm. a little triggering for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was fascinating, really. Um, I'm, you know, that part of my life is behind me. Um, But it was really, I think, really insightful. Um, And I think you did a really nuanced job of addressing sort of the pitfalls and advantages and things like that, that, you know, the international development sector brings to um, these contexts. So But all that to say, um, could you could you just talk a little bit about the role of international NGOs and international aid in the Tibetan plateau and how these um, actors are changing relationships with, you know, among pastoralists with each other?
1: Yes, uh, and this is when I realize you know books were written in the past um and already, I mean, this book was published in two thousand and eighteen, but it was based on field work from years before that and uh, and and that's where we realize the the <laughs> the duration of time that passes within academia for publications um, really should be shortened because, in a sense, your question is a little bit moot. Um, In a sense, my research on this is already a little bit moot because currently there are not very many international development organisations able to operate, allowed to operate on the Tibetan plateau. So there's been a real clampdown um, in terms of who, what, you know, where, how, uh, what kind of money, what kind of funding. Um, and so, without going into too much detail, again, because also because um, I don't know really what's been happening in the past three years as a result of lockdowns, shutdowns, all of those things. But I, I do know that um, for the best part of almost 10 years now, there's been a significant tightening and increasing tightening on the activities of these organizations, uh, so that what I wrote in the book really is now a thing of the past, uh, you know, uh, the, the sorts of, um, insights and lessons that might be applied are really perhaps not as um, relevant now, um, but certainly in that time of my field work and in that time of um, the, uh, the context, uh, I mean, we're talking over 10 years ago now, uh, it, it was it was all sort of buzzing. right? It, there was uh, actually a time of um, hope and excitement, um, especially amongst a certain generation of Tibetans uh, on the plateau uh, who, you know, were aspirational, who, uh, you know, spoke three languages, who um, who wanted uh, very much to do a lot of things. Um, so in, in that sense, I think the international development agencies did offer that, provided that sort of... Um, uh, uh, ability uh, to hope and to dream and to aspire, and in that sense, you know, perhaps I was uh, a little harsh on on them uh, and, and their uh, their effects um, in the book itself. But the actual changes that they wanted to bring, that they explicitly intended, uh, that that's what I w- I was criticizing, I suppose. You know, the the unintended consequence of of bringing hope uh, to a certain generation of Tibetans. I'm not sure that that was ever in any log frame. <laughs> I don't think that was in ever in any kind of outwardly explicit um, statement of any of those organizations. But, you know, they did. They did allow that um, and, and, you know, have to acknowledge that now, especially uh, a few years after the fact. But just in terms of their explicit mission, like, you know, the explicit targets and indicators, um, I think that's where uh, the book really um, bears down quite critically on um, on those sorts of um, activities, um, and and that's where you know it uh, really also brings uh, up. You know the questions of what the industry is working for. You know who the industry is working for. Um, you know does it really help um, these young, hopeful, energetic young Tibetans uh, to spend all their times in meetings trying to uh, fill in forms that really you know were devised in, in Washington DC and have absolutely no bearing on the the uh, the lived experience of local people you know uh, that that was that was the the very very interesting tension um that kept emerging as a result of um, these organizations wanting to do the best that they could to help local people, but having their processes really impede (laughs) um, and block uh, the the ability to realize that. Um, And in in many, many cases, it was um, the brokers, the development brokers uh, who were, Navigating um, and carrying most of the, the strain in a way of, of trying to speak two very different conceptual languages uh, to two very different groups the local group and the development organization. Um, th- those brokers, those young Tibetan aspirational, hopeful Tibetans, really were caught in the middle there, you know, tr- and doing the best that they could, in a sense, um, to translate between these very different conceptual frames you know try to explain targets and indicators to your no- nomad <laughs> you know down down on the ground and they'll go no we actually just want the binoculars so we can um, do our uh, patrols for our environmental things oh okay all right <laughs> but the binoculars need to do something what's the target you know and they' go well no we just want the binoculars really <laughs> that's something that's very very hard and you're nodding your head here it's very, very hard uh, to kind of um, translate across and to mediate, really, because we really are talking about radically different conceptual frames.
0: Yeah, that all sounds very familiar to me. I'm so sorry um, that this is tricky. <laughs> Um, And so how did did the international, in your experience, how did the international development sector sort of see pastoralism specifically? You know, we've talked a bit about how the state kind of views pastoralism. We've talked about these kind of alternatively romantic and sort of vilified perceptions of pastoralism. How do you think the international development and aid sector saw pastoralism? Was it something to be kind of, fostered and preserved? Was it something that they were maybe trying to uh, change people away from? Mm -hmm. What did that look like?
1: Yeah, I think I I would, um, they're all different, and, and some um, of the organisations weren't even very specifically targeted um, or directed at pastoralists. You know, they, you know, they they were sort of more generally um, trying to improve Tibetan education, for example, or uh, help preserve Tibetan culture. So it was uh, in some. Uh, most cases, in fact, um, more general than that. So, they, they would be looking at agricultural communities as well. They would be looking at the, the peri urban uh, groups as well. Um, but I would say um, generally that it was probably tending to the foster and preserve. Um, you know, so, so let's try to, if they choose to want to live this life, how do we best support them to try to do this as a way? to preserve Tibetan culture or as a way to um, uh, improve the education. So if the nomads don't want to send their children to Um, fixed state government schools, you know, are there activities that we can do that might sort of maybe mirror something like the mobile um, monasteries, the nomadic monasteries? Could there be nomadic schools, you know? Um, Or uh, here was another one where, you know, if the distances are too far for the students to go um, every day to school, then might a boarding school uh, be uh, an option to deliver, you know, K-12 or K-9 to education. Well, if it were the case, then what, what kind of boarding school? You know, nomads aren't just going to give their children up to any old person, you know. Um, so who, who would be most trusted? Well, the local lama. Therefore, would the lama be um, amenable to opening the boarding school? So there were those sorts of discussions happening, and they were, to some extent, um, they were very participatory. They were sort of, you know, sort of on the ground. Clearly, they were, the organizations were employing local Tibetans who spoke the dialect, who were able, you know, to communicate with the nomads. So that, that was a big plus already, you know. Um, it really was at the level of, I guess, um, uh, those other conceptual things that, that I was sort of uh, drawing attention to uh, by way of critique, But again, I would say that there was genuine intention uh, to uh, foster and preserve, to help, to enable as much as as possible. Um, But it came up against itself by its own sort of bureaucratic tangles, as it were. Yeah,
0: um, and so what about kind of environmental change in the Tibetan Plateau? I think that's something that comes up a lot in my research in the Middle East. Is just how the effects of climate change um, have been one of these factors. Uh, that's causing very rapid change among nomadic pastoralist communities. And this is something that is sort of out of anyone's control, nomads, state, international development, anyone. What does that look like in Tibet uh, around how kind of environmental and ecological factors are maybe forcing adaptations of pastoralism? Um, And this is maybe, maybe this is, um, where what you brought up earlier around caterpillar fungus um, and that industry might also be relevant, if you could go Mm. into that more as well, too.
1: Yeah, well, the Tibetan plateau is vast. And so um, the environmental sort of factors are very different in various regions or different areas. Um, So, for example, I know uh, towards um, the historical region of Amdo, which sits um, sort of... In the area of northern Sichuan um, and Qinghai province in what is now the Chinese state, Um, those areas um, uh, as well, actually bordering the Machu or the Yellow River, those areas have tended towards desertification. Um, and uh, and it and it's complex. It's not a simple case of quote unquote overgrazing, right? Which might be which might be found in, in rather simplistic policy documents, but it's absolutely a complex um, sort of bundle of factors that have caused this desertification. And in those cases, nomads are responding, adapting in various ways. This is not an area of my research, so I I know more through um quite sort of dependable um, sort of 2nd second, secondhand knowledge, um, but there, there are sort of movements now of local Tibetan groups uh, trying to reverse desertification by planting, act- actively planting trees and, you know, sort of creating um, irrigation projects uh, in order to water the trees. All of that, that's sort of being um, done by very vibrant local environmental groups. So nothing to do with international development organizations, but um, former employees of the international development organizations have since started their own local groups and and really got local people involved in getting their hands dirty, planting. Um, And and so I know that's happening uh, up uh, north and east. Um, around the area of central Tibet, I really can't comment because I, I don't have enough um, knowledge of that. And in the area of eastern Tibet and Kham, where I've done my field work, um, there I would say the environmental concerns are around um, not so much the desertification of grasslands, because where we are here is in a different uh sort of latitude and longitude. It's much more forested, much more river valleys, you know, it's it's um known as the Four Rivers, Six Valleys area, the Druk. and what that means, you know, it's really the um, the, the headwaters of of the main rivers uh, of Asia originate in this part of the plateau, and so wh- what what's happening here is that um, the grasslands are. Uh, not really impacted as much but there have been construction of dams so that there are sort of environmental impacts in in that way um, that then cause further effects and magnified effects downstream as you go further down the valleys and into sort of say um agricultural areas so all of that um Are uh, all of those factors are actually changing how certain groups are working through um, their practices? But I I would say for the nomads themselves, um, the impact, at least in this eastern Tibetan region of Kham, is probably not as great as in other Tibetan, other nomadic areas of the Tibetan plateau. So it really Hmm. varies, I would say. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: And so. Maybe a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time um, is around your kind of current and future research. You know, you mentioned that this is kind of. Older material um, by now. So, what are you working on currently? What questions are I know you know COVID and everything uh, has put a stop to a lot of field work, especially in China. Um, it's still a little tricky at the moment. But what questions are you hoping to be able to investigate around pastoralism uh, on the Tibetan Plateau, sort of going forward?
1: Well, yeah, thanks for that. Look, I, look I'm currently on a project, a research project funded. By the Australian Research Council, and that's around the idea uh, or the topic of uh, Tibet's rivers and their role in climate change. So, your your question, the last question, in the environment was uh, particularly uh, poignant because it is currently what I'm looking at um, and have been looking at for the past few years. Um, the project itself is. Uh, genuinely interdisciplinary as in we're working with scientists, hydrologists, a paleoecologist, a geomorphologist um, alongside uh, myself as an anthropologist and also historians, uh, environmental historians. Uh, So we're looking deep into the the records. We're looking at ice. Uh, We're looking for, for, you know, river cores. And we're looking at um, uh, the the sort of... uh, the available data also in terms of text, Tibetan, Texts, both uh, sacred and secular, around um, the understanding of uh, rivers specifically and water more generally. Uh, all of that's being also placed within the context of geomorphology. You know that the movement uh, of um, not only uh, the monsoons and the, those um, hydraulic systems, but also of mountains, um, because rivers are really about the the, the meeting of these various factors. Um, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. And related specifically to nomads um, is the idea of how they have um, sort of interacted with the streams uh, that make up the headwaters of um, the Dritche, which is the uh, Yangtze River, the upper Yangtze River, and um, also their interactions around um, wetlands in, in that part. Uh, so the grasslands of a particular area um, that um, are used by the nomadic pastoralists of Kham are not just grasslands; they also comprise wetlands. Um, and inter- uh, you know wetlands, there's a specific Tibetan word for it. it's called na. And, and those, maybe it's not wetlands in the same way that we might think of coastal wetlands. These are like high highland wetlands, um, but uh, they're very much integrated uh, with the river and, and the streams around. And, and the, their interactions with that um, and also the understandings of what those wetlands are, what the deities are that are involved. So there's one significant deity called the L, which is um, – it's like a water serpent, um, very much connected, not completely, but also connected to the Naga in the Indic uh, sense. Uh, that, that's all, that comes up a lot um, for Tibetans, um, pastoralists, especially when they talk about um, water. And streams, because these lu live in the headwaters of streams, but they're also extremely sensitive to anthropogenic activity. So you can just by you know doing what you do, you can pollute them, you can anger them. They're worldly deities, so they get pissed off. <laughs> and you know, when they get pissed off, then you're just gonna be covered with boils and leprosy and, and and horrible, horrible things. So so that's all that's all part of um the uh the interactions, and, and that's been the subject of my research more recent research
0: fascinating that sounds like an amazing project um, I'm looking forward to seeing the results of that
1: yeah, well we're, we're working on the collected book right now not an easy task let me tell you because no, it's never. multi-author <laughs> and multi truly multidisciplinary. so yeah um, yes. speaking of um,
0: <laughs> long publication timelines in yes. academia yeah yes. <laughs> um, Well, thank you so much um, for coming on and talking to me about your research. Um, That was absolutely fascinating. I learned a lot more than I ever knew about (laughs) Tibetan pastoralism uh, and everything I found really interesting. uh, And I'm sure listeners will too. So thank you again for joining me.
1: Thanks so much, Maggie.